This is Macro Horizons, episode 225, Skipping into Summer, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with Ben Jeffrey and Vale Hartman to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of June 5th. And as the market continues to digest the array of differing opinions in the recent Fed speak, we'll observe that being the chair is apparently in the eye of the beholder. Bullard. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. In the holiday-shortened week just passed, the Treasury market put in a very choppy performance. Now, in part, this was a function of the progress made for a debt ceiling deal. As it currently stands, the debt ceiling will be suspended until 2025, putting to bed the issue of whether or not the U.S. will default in 2023 or 2024. We also got a variety of economic data, including, and perhaps arguably the most important, being the stronger-than-expected non-farm payrolls print of 339 on Friday. Now, this data was for the month of May and, generally speaking, was a bond bearish impulse with the bulk of the impact on the curve hitting the front end as two-year yields drifted off the lows. Within the details of the report, however, what we saw was a gain in the unemployment rate to 3.7% versus the consensus for a more modest one-tenth of a percent increase to 3.5%. Now, Taking a step back, 3.7 is still a very low unemployment rate and consistent with the ongoing strength in the jobs market that has characterized this cycle so far and allowed the Fed an extended runway to attempt to engineer a soft landing of the real economy. If nothing else, the year-to-date performance of the real economy has afforded Powell an opportunity to continue the Fed's efforts to reestablish price stability. This scenario has arguably played out ideally for monetary policymakers because we haven't seen a troubling drop in consumption, a troubling decline in real GDP, or an uncontrolled spike in the unemployment rate. As a result, even if inflation proves stubborn over the course of the next several months, the Fed won't find itself in a situation where it needs to respond to an economic crisis via rate cuts. As a result, when we look further out the Fed Fund's futures curve and we see cuts by year-end priced in, the market is increasingly viewing those cuts as a fade. Now, it's also important to keep in mind that the Fed has gone out of its way to draw the distinction between a pause and the end of the tightening cycle. A pause could 
subsequently be followed by rate hikes. This symmetry that the Fed has tried so diligently to introduce into the market discourse has resulted, intuitively, in significant rate cuts being pushed forward to 2024 and out of 2023. If nothing else, policymakers have to be looking at that as a success given the realities of the mixed economic performance. Our core trades for 2023 remain in place. We do like the fives bonds steepening trade. We dipped slightly into negative territory momentarily in the week just past, that being a good opportunity to reset a core steepener. In terms of outright yield levels, we are a buyer of 10 years anywhere north of 370 as we have confidence that 350 will remain the center point for activity in the 10-year sector over the course of the coming three months. May's employment situation report is in hand, and despite the outsized beat in the headline figure, the market still widely favors no hike in June. The CPI release on June 13 holds the most weight in swaying the Fed's decision, though we continue to expect that the FOMC will keep rates on hold. Given the credit tightening implications from the regional banking crisis and the imminent TGA rebuild, yeah, Vale, I think you've touched on a lot of very important points. First, we are entering the Fed's pre-FOMC meeting period of radio silence. And so when we do see the CPI print on the 13th of June, the Fed won't have the opportunity to further guide monetary policy expectations via official commentary. If the number is dramatic enough in one direction or another, we could see something leak through the financial media that would assist the market in preparation for the June 14th announcement. Let us not forget, on the 14th, we will also see an update of the SEP, which includes the beloved dot plot. Within the dot plot, the market will be focused on the 2023 dot, which was not revised in March, for any indication that the Fed believes that terminal might be another 25 or 50 basis points higher than the current level. We're very much in the skip June camp. We've heard that from a variety of core FOMC members, including Powell, who's advocating a wait and see stance. So therefore, any indication via the SEP that more hikes could be in the offing will be in and of itself a tradable event, and in this context, presumably exaggerating the inversion in the twos tens curve. And the 339,000 jobs that were revealed in the headline NFP figures were unquestionably strong. There's little doubt about that. But further within the details of the broader BLS report, what we saw was not necessarily discouraging from an economic perspective, but it also wasn't quite as robust as those headline hiring figures would have suggested in the first pass. Specifically within the household survey, which is the driver of the unemployment rate, we actually saw aggregate job cuts of 310,000 jobs, and that in turn pushed the unemployment rate higher to 3.7% versus the expectation for a more modest increase to 3.5%. Along with this, average hourly earnings matched expectations on a month-over-month -month basis, 
were accompanied by downward revisions to April's data, and that brought the year-over-year pace down to 4.3% year-over-year versus expectations for an unchanged 4.4% increase in wage growth last month. So it was a good jobs report, but I would argue not a great one. And especially when taking into consideration the trajectory of wages, there wasn't really anything within the details that pointed to the Fed absolutely needing to hike another 25 basis points in June. Now, obviously, Ian, as you discussed and Vale, you hinted at, it's really going to ultimately be a result of the CPI data that's going to inform what the Fed decides. But the fact that we heard from Harker and probably more notably the recently nominated vice chair, Philip Jefferson, that their predisposition is to take a meeting off, that means that all else equal, the Fed would like to keep rates steady. And this part of the conversation hasn't even yet taken into consideration the fact that a debt ceiling deal is done, the Treasury Department's borrowing constraints have been suspended until 2025, and that means we're going to need to see a lot of bill issuance coming down the pipe over the next several weeks and months. The upper end of near-term borrowing needs come in roughly $1.1 trillion potentially even higher. And the baseline assumption is that all is going to be done in the bill market. And as the Treasury general account is replenished, that money is going to need to come out of the system from somewhere. The regional banking stress has already shifted the level of reserves in the banking sector to a level that we expect will remain static in the very near term, certainly not decrease. So that will leave the focus on the RRP and the potential for cash to move into bills from that facility. And this is a bit of a divergence from what we saw in the early days of the Fed's balance sheet rundown when QT started in the early part of last year. During that episode and before the Treasury Department started needing to run down the TGA, the impact of QT on the overall financial system actually came out of primarily reserves. So the inverse of what it is we're expecting is going to happen as bill supply is increased. And a big reason for that is that unlike the QT process whereby Fed reinvestment at auctions is slowed and that's the mechanism that the balance sheet shrinks by, the increase in bill issuance and the fact that bill rates by and large are trading cheaper than the 505 basis point yield offered at the RRP means that the fungibility between parking overnight cash at the Fed and taking advantage of T-bills is much greater than the reinvestment process that's associated with QT. So for that reason, along with the reserve dynamic you highlight on the back of the regional banking crisis, Ian, it's more reasonable to assume that the bulk of the capital that's going to take advantage of the increase in bill supply is going to come from the RRP. We're not expecting this is going to be a one-for-one -one dynamic, and there probably will be some reserve drain, but generally speaking, the consensus is that RRP balances are going to begin declining as bill issuance ramps up, which should contain the risk of reserve scarcity in the near term and any repeat of the September 2019 episode of the surge in overnight rates that ultimately necessitated an official response from the Fed via those reserve management purchases in the bill market and the implementation of the standing repo facility, even if we didn't call it that back then. And it's also another reason for the Fed to take June off of its rate hiking campaign because there is some uncertainty associated with what happens to the system when the TGA is replenished and QE becomes QT in a very significant fashion. What do you guys think about the implications for growth from the debt ceiling deal? So at the end of the day, when we look at some of the changes that the debt ceiling compromise implied for the budget, for spending, it's really not worth more than two or three tenths of a percent 
off of GDP, and that impact isn't going to take hold until the latter part of 2024. The more relevant impact on growth comes in the form of consumer confidence and spending. In the event we hadn't seen a debt deal reached, I would be a lot more concerned about the near-term prospects for the real economy. But having put the issue behind us, consumer confidence will at least not deteriorate further than it already has, and that dovetails well with the Fed's objective of keeping monetary policy rates at terminal for the balance of 2023, if not ultimately needing to deliver another rate hike or two. The worst case scenario for the Fed has largely been avoided, and that would have been had 2023 started with negative GDP and a spike in the unemployment rate, we're now far enough into the year that even if the unemployment rate ends 2023 at the Fed's projected 4.5%, there will still be enough time and constructive progress in bringing realized inflation back toward the 2% inflation target that the Fed can claim victory to some extent, regardless of what happens from here. And as it relates to the debt ceiling deal and the price action we saw in treasuries, remember to conclude last week, it seemed almost inevitable that 10-year yields were going to challenge that 390 support level we'd been watching and even potentially make a run back toward a forehandle. But as an especially astute client flag this week, Maybe a degree of the bearishness we saw to conclude last week was the market pricing in the fact that Biden and McCarthy were going to reach a deal. Sure, maybe there was going to be some negotiation that needed to be done on Capitol Hill, but by and large, a debt ceiling agreement was traded over the last weekend. And that means demand that was sidelined until we actually had some clarity on the situation was more comfortable to step in and take advantage of the sell-off that we experienced over the past two weeks. So instead of a return to 4% tens, what we ultimately got was as bearish as 386 and then an impressive rally into the payrolls report back down to 360 and within striking distance of what we continue to see as 10-year yields favorite level of 2023, and that is 350. So in keeping with the idea that we're expecting duration is going to trade a broad range as the pendulum of sentiment swings from hawkish op optimism to dovish pessimism, we'll argue we're in the start of the process of another swing back away from the hawkish extremes and toward a more mid-range trading environment. It certainly is a fair assumption to use 350 as a center point for 10-year yields for the next several months. We have enough uncertainty in terms of the global macro outlook that importing disinflationary pressures as the Fed remains stubborn in its commitment to fight domestic inflation continues to resonate putting downward pressure on 10-year break-evens, a theme that has been in place over the course of the last several weeks. And Ben, as you point out, we are reaching a stage in the cycle where there will be an increased divergence of near-term monetary policy outlooks. And so that implies that the most volatile sector of the curve will continue to be the front end, particularly two-year yields. And that has implications for the shape of the curve. The higher the probability that the Fed has reached the end of the cycle and won't be able to deliver any more hikes this year, the further we would anticipate 
two-year yields would be comfortable drifting below effective Fed funds, thereby re-steepening the twos-tens curve. As we've seen via our favorite expression of the cyclical steepening, i.e. fives bonds, that momentum continues to favor a steeper curve. We touched momentarily below zero, which was an ideal opportunity to scale back into a core 530 steepener, and we see the path of least resistance in this spread as remaining toward the upside, not the downside. It wasn't just the price action in U.S. rates that was notable this week. The S&P 500 reached its highest level since August of 2022, and the VIX is down to its lowest level since 2021. And in pondering whether this matters both for our moods and for financial conditions. Well, Ian's smiling. I'm laughing at you, not with you. In the week ahead, the Treasury market has remarkably little to work with in terms of fundamental inputs. The data calendar is limited to Monday's release of ISM services, On the heels of the weaker-than-expected ISM manufacturing data for May, ISM services is generally expected to continue to show strength in the non-goods producing sector with a consensus of 52.5. This is solidly above the 50% threshold and would certainly afford the Fed plenty of flexibility over the course of the next several meetings. There remains an active debate as to whether the Fed will deliver another 25 basis point rate hike on the June 14th meeting. It goes without saying that CPI will be influential in that debate, and the timing of CPI coming the day before the Fed announces its rate decision complicates matters from the market's perspective, although for Powell and company, it will receive the exact same weight that it might have had it been released a week or two earlier. The only reason it's relevant for the market is we're going to be going into the Fed decision with a very small window for the Fed to offer any guidance. Now, in the event that we actually receive guidance, it will be of the unofficial variety via the media, That being said, the market will, without question, be on headline watch immediately before the Fed's decision. We also anticipate that there will be a further effort on the part of the Treasury market to consolidate. And in the context of the recent price action, that suggests a drift lower in 10- and 30-year rates and an effort on the part of the two-year sector to establish a new dynamic equilibrium. The two-year sector will continue to be far more a function of near- and medium-term monetary policy expectations, while fives, tens, and thirties will respond to the evolving macro outlook. The unemployment rate at 3.7%, while still low in outright terms, could represent the beginning of a more troubling trend toward the Fed's projected unemployment rate by year-end of 4.5%. A 4.5% rate at year-end wouldn't be problematic for the Fed per se. The more concerning dynamic would be if the household survey revealed a 4.5% unemployment rate over the course of the next two or three months. A sharp increase is far more troubling for the macro outlook than a slow and steady rebasing of unemployment to a slightly higher plateau. Even when looking historically, 
4.5% is still comparatively low for the unemployment rate in the U.S. economy. All that being said, we will continue to watch the evolution of labor force participation and perhaps more importantly, the developments in average hourly earnings and the correlation between nominal wages and core services ex shelter. That's a key component within the CPI series that the Fed has steered investors towards focusing on as it pertains to monetary policy makers' efforts to re-anchor inflation expectations going forward. All else being equal, if we were afforded one single data point ahead of the June FOMC rate decision, we would want that subcomponent of CPI as an indicator of the probability that the Fed might or might not choose to pause in June. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And as an aside, it hasn't been lost on us that the Fed's wordsmithing has devolved from debating some, most, and many to hop, skip, and jump. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. For full legal disclosure, visit bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.